Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. Hello, wackos. Welcome to an evergreen episode of Without a Country. Uh, hope you had a wonderful Christmas if you celebrate. This uh, is for Tuesday, December 26th. I'm at home. I'm chilling with my family. Um, but uh, we still wanted to bring you a fresh episode of Without a Country, because you know me, Corinne Fisher, she doesn't skip a week of podcasting. I have podcasted every single week of my motherfucking life for the past 10 years, and uh, hasn't aged me a day. Okay. (gasps) Just kidding. Here we are. Here we are. Um, You guys have been super into cult documentaries recently that's the most requested type of documentary I did a poll on my Instagram story for what documentary you wanted me to watch for this evergreen episode for the holidays and uh there were many suggestions of documentaries we've already watched so that makes me feel like you're really enjoying the content I'm putting out into the world uh we were suggested to do stolen youth which we did an episode about uh we were escaping twin flames we talked about Love Has Won, The Cult of Mother God we've talked about, and then, then some older ones uh, were recommended, which I just, I, I got to say, are pretty detrimental to the algorithm. And so there was a couple that I was interested in. Uh, the Teal Swan documentary, I was, I did think was an interesting recommendation. However, it was super, it's a docu-series and it's super long and I wasn't going to be able to get through the entire thing. And also... It wasn't accessible anywhere um, that I didn't have to pay for it. And I'm comfortable paying for it as long as I just the money's not going to her. I don't think it is because it's pretty disparaging uh, against her. But I do want to look into that. It was mostly the length of it was too long. Each episode was like an hour. Um, so instead, I started to plow through, and this was another recommendation from a wacko, The Garden 
commune or cult. And I had never heard of this uh, one before, but it's interesting. This is also a docu-series. Uh, I got to be honest, the garden commune or cult is it's like if the re- the real world, if no one showered, that's what it is. It's shot like that, too. It has that reality show feel to it, but it is still investigative journalism, mostly because it definitely seems like the filmmakers uh, like basically lied to the people um, who they were filming. And that happens in reality TV, too. But this is a different sense. It definitely was investigative journalism or is. Um, but they they call it season one. So it is kind of that reality TV show vibe. I was able to get through four episodes. Um, I believe there are six episodes in season one. It's not the kind of documentary or docu-series that like has a beginning, a middle, and an, and an end. It's ongoing. Um, which is why it wasn't imperative that I finished it. And just time-wise, I couldn't in the amount of time that this was recommended to me. Um, But I kind of wanted to go over what is a cult, uh, the things that have happened in this group and other associations to cults that one of the members uh, specifically has. Uh, Because he, one of the members of this garden cult, has associations or grew up um, in the Rainbow family, which is a different cult. Um, All right, so let's start at the beginning. And if you want to watch this, is on HBO Max. the, the episode one starts with a prospective member of the garden. commune or or cult uh shooting a chipmunk in the face and that just seemed like overkill you know to shoot a chipmunk in the it seems like it's so tiny the bullet is almost you know it just seemed like a we it seemed like overkill and um i think that was going to be you know foreshadowing for the entire series uh, this specifically was a cult that first became, or uh, sorry, a group. I don't want to definitively say that they're a cult. It's a, a group that first went viral on TikTok. And that's why this uh, docuseries, I'm assuming, was made because it got a lot of uh, interest on TikTok. And then people started accusing them of being a cult. And they were on TikTok to get more members. They are this kind of e- egalitarian group um, that are trying to live off the land. Uh, There are some people who are interested in becoming a member of this group who are more like survivalists who think that the end of the American government is near and that we are going to have to learn how to live off the land. That's like half of them. And then the other half are kind of more like these like dumpster diving type hippies. And there is a lot of drama within the commune. These all type all types of people don't get along. Um, and so the first couple episodes, you're seeing the OG members, and then you're also learning their process for allowing new members into their group. It's a 10-day trial period, and then the rest of the group has to uh, come to a consensus. And even if you know, one person of the OG group doesn't want someone in, they do get voted out. And um, I'm going to do some spoilers in this, just so you know. Uh, Within like 
you know, one episode, the newest member of or the newest prospective member of the garden, Naraya, who is a seems like very she's very into spirituality. She's always like saging the circle. And it's kind of like uh, that Burning Man vibe or energy of what can you can what can you contribute, right? So when you show up, you can bring material goods, but you can also bring a service that you can uh, donate to the group. And so she used to be uh, like an esthetician and a and a hairdresser. So she brings a her hair washing sink to give scalp massages and her scissors so that she can give everyone free haircuts. And she also. Uh, you know, does blessings, engages in spirituality. She honestly seems like she has a good amount to bring to the table. There's another guy who uh, comes in to uh, see if he wants to become a part of the group. And he's a big Viking type guy. And he's more of a survivalist. He used to be in the military. Um, He has a lot of skills. He seems like he like he has way more skills than anyone in the existing group because he's actually big. He can build things. He can hold things. He understands the land in a way that they don't. And uh, he seems almost disappointed that they. this is a group that's trying to live off the land and they don't know basic outdoor skills like how to hunt. And he's interested in teaching them that. But then, of course, some members of the group aren't uh, don't think that hunting should be allowed on the land. Um so these are the kind of situations that they're going through. And it's more like a you know day in the life of following uh, these people rather than like a, this is how the cult happened and then this crazy thing happened and then another crazy thing happened. So when I say like it is basically like a commune style version of the real world, that's a pretty accurate depiction, except for instead of all the new people showing up on day one, you pretty much have a new person showing up um, every single episode. One girl is like a 25-year-old from Los Angeles who shows up with her uh, eyelash extensions in and her nails in. And I mean, these they, there's there's nothing here. Like they haven't even done a good job of building up the land that they're on. They are dumpster diving for their food. It's really disgusting. They're shitting in holes and then putting ash over it. And they explain that the reason they put ash over their shit in the shitholes is so, because that uh, gets makes flies uninterested in their fecal matter. Um, because of course, if they were shitting close enough to where they were eating and they didn't push the ash on it, then the flies would sit in the shit and then go sit on their food, and everyone would get very ill. So that was a fun that was a fun little concept to learn about. Um, they live in tents. Uh, some live in like a school bus, a couple live in their cars all on the same property. Uh, there is a teepee of course that was built by indigenous folks and, uh, delivered to them. Um, but yeah, there is a, definitely a lot of talk about needing to learn, live, to learn, learn to live off the land because the government is going to, uh, crumble. So kind of like January 6 vibes. And then there's also a lot of talk about AI taking their jobs, a lot of that. And so they're going to learn how to live off the land because I guess AI can't take that from them. So in the um, accusations of being called a cult, I first wanted to look into 
what really constitutes a cult, right? Because when you look up the definition, like I thought we were just kind of using it in a silly way to call things, you know, like comedy or like the Upright Citizens Brigade a cult. But by definition, like those things kind of, I mean, some definitions almost lend themselves to those things being a cult. I mean, one says religious, like one definition is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward a particular uh, figure or object. But like, what is religion as a concept anyway? Like religions are created all the time in modern times, like Scientology. So like, it's it's not like you have to have an actual God. It can just be a regular human person. Um And so a system of devotion toward a particular figure, I mean, there are some of my colleagues in in, in comedy, and I won't name names, who have set up such structures uh, to pretty much have people worship them. Um, Another definition is a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. And uh, the third is a misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular person or thing. I mean, by that regard, I mean, I could almost see, and this is something I've talked about on the show before, I could almost see like something like Guys We Fucked being, uh, being a cult, but like not even using it in a funny pop culture way. I guess it would be more a cult if we, if I, if when everyone like, if I was trying more to have everyone like agree with me unanimously instead of having being being interested in open debate and actively saying like if you believe or if you not if you believe if you agree with everything I say there's something wrong with your critical thinking I don't think I guess a cult leader wouldn't say that but I mean it's a very loose definition like what a cult is right and um I think we are surrounded by cults when they think when they when someone says something in an article like the cult of soul cycle like I don't even think that is a hyperbolic use of cult like I think that's like a like a pretty I guess I just didn't realize how loose the definition was and I thought thought there had to be like more uh virtuosity in it but there there doesn't have to be and so I went and did a little research on what makes a cult um and I found this New Yorker article from 2021, big year for cults, apparently. It says, what makes a cult the line between delusion and what the rest of us believe may be blurrier than we think? Um, oh, God, this looks like to be a super long article, but whatever, we have time, who cares? Um, so it says, male cult leaders sometimes claim droit do, I don't know how to even say this word. I just found this, that's why. It's a French word. Let's look it up. Let's look it up. Droit du Seigneur. <laughs> Droit du Seigneur. Droit du Seigneur. <laughs> okay. Which is a supposed legal or customary right of a feudal lord to have sexual relations with a vassal's bride on her wedding day. I mean, so this is kind of an archaic thing that they're using in the New Yorker just to be obnoxious, which is, again, like, if you're not, I don't think they're helping the case of liberalism by using these these sayings that are, like, technically, I guess, correct, but completely archaic and not used anymore. So anyway, so male cult leaders sometimes claim droit de seigneur over female followers. 
um, or use physical violence to sexually exploit them. But on the whole, they find it more efficient to dress up the exploitation as some sort of gift or therapy, an opportunity to serve God, an exorcism of hangups, a fast track to spiritual enlightenment. One stratagem favored by Keith Renier, the leader of the New York-based self-help cut uh, cult Nexium, was to tell the female disciples in his inner circle that they had been high-ranking Nazis in their former lives and that having yogic sex with him was a way to shift the residual bad energy lurking in their systems. I mean, we get it. You're single, ladies. I mean, how? what, what do you got to believe here? According to Sarah Berman, whose book, Don't Call It a Cult, focuses on the experience of Nexium's women members, Rainier was especially alert to the manipulative uses of shame and guilt. And we say that again. Again, like we're talking about Nexium here, but it could be – this is just like – it could be any cult. There's so many similarities between these. Uh, when he eventually retired his Nazi story, surmising perhaps that there were limits to how many reincarnated SS officers one group could plausibly contain, he replaced it with another narrative des- designed to stimulate self-loathing. He told the women that the privileges of their gender had weakened them – turned them into prideful princesses and that in order to be freed from the prison of their muling femininity, they needed to submit to a program of discipline and suffering. This became the sales spiel for the Nexium subgroup uh, DOS, Dominus Obsequious Sororium, dog Latin for Master of the Obedient Sisterhood a pyramid scheme of sexual slavery in which members underwrote their vow of obedience to Ranier by having his initials branded on their groins and handing over collateral in the form of comprising personal information and nude photos, right? And like when you're trying to get ownership on someone, you like we hear that a lot, even with like the Chris D'Elia story, there was multiple people who he had, I believe, get his uh, initials tattooed to them. Um, this is like, this is like a common tactic, this like branding, this tattooing, even when I see like multiple people with the same tattoo of whatever it, whatever it is, I go, huh, that's like weird. It feels cultish. Okay. Um, Legion of Skanks, uh, at the same time, (laughs) Mike's part of a cult, but I mean, there is something about that. And like, I don't think like there is a discussion in the garden about like, is a cult a bad thing? And I, of course, it's scary when someone's bringing it up to you in the middle of the woods and has like a hacksaw. But I almost I, I almost heard what like I kind of understood what they were saying. Like, what really is the difference between a religion and a cult, you know? And there are cult like qualities that, you know, there are types of cults that it seems like does, you know, create this sense of community. And I can see that even with like the multiple people I know with legions of legion of skanks tattoos. I think it's when you start to like be willing to do things that go against your ethics or your free will to serve uh, that thing that that's when it gets scary. And when what, what like when when will that happen? When will that that stop? Were you going to say something about being a cult, Mike? Oh yeah, I processed that like in the in my first year working here. That you were in a cult. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, because I mean, like, and but again, I I don't even think like there are some people who are in this like Legion of Skank cult, and they all have like the tattoo that I think 
um, have gotten worse from being a part of it. Uh, and then there are people like you who I think it kind of had that sh- like militaristic structure that you needed. And we've all witnessed you become a better, more functional person as a part of this cult. Right. And that's similar to religion. You see some people go and enter a religion and it really serves them and they don't become these like proselytizing weirdos. Uh, They just like kind of use it to assist them on their own spiritual journey. And then some people use it to control other people, to manipulate other people. So like I when I when they have this conversation on the garden uh, cult or commune about is a cult necessarily a bad thing? I knew that I know that the, the the footage was included in the docu series to make the person having that conversation seem scary, but I was watching it going. I actually see their point there. Like there are so many things within our society that are cults that I think do serve people, and some people desperately need structure. Realistically, we just fragmented the church into eight million different things. For so sure, it's like, you know. God bless. Find meaning wherever, dude. Just find it. Right. As don't long as you don't weapon, as long as you don't weaponize it, uh, other people. Because when I say like the negatives, for instance, of the Legion of Skanks cult, there I think there are people who have joined this cult, um, who I've seen come in kind of like you know boys looking to become men, and instead of becoming functional men, they have become misogynists, and that's my bone to pick with it because they have been shown like. You know, they they that's what they that's what they that's what they think like a man is supposed to be like. And they think, oh, I got power by being shitty to to women or by a fair. That's not a fair comparison, though, because I I feel like Big J kind of broke me of that. You know, no, 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 no. I'm so I'm saying but I'm saying you are an example of someone. Listen, you can if you're if you're weak. You can you can misinterpret a message. I'm not saying that's necessarily the message of Legion of Skanks. I think there are certainly individuals in Legion of Skanks who are more misogynistic than others. <laughs> Pick your poison. Um, but two out of the three are girl dads. That's all I'm gonna say. That means jack shit. I don't know, dude. That means jack shit. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Also, Lewis's son is lovely. Um, You're right. Three out of the three are girl dads. No, Lewis's son is lovely. He's lovely. He loves Alfred. Um, okay, so let's see. This uh, this became the sales spiel. So we're talking about yeah the program of dis- discipline and suffering. This became the sales spiel for the Nexium subgroup Dose Dominus Obsequious Sororium, as we said, dog Latin for the master of the obedient sisterhood, a pyramid scheme of sexual slavery in which members underwrote their vow of obedience to Rainier by having his initials branded on their groins and handing over collateral in the form of compri- compromising personal information and nude photos. And again, that's a tactic. Handing over uh, personal information and com- and nude photos is something that I've you know you've seen in many different cults. It's also a tactic that uh, Nathan used on one episode of Nathan for you, Nathan Fielder, uh, to get people to like quit smoking or something. It was hilarious. At the time of Rainier's arrest in 2018 on charges of sex trafficking, racketeering. 
and other crimes, racketeering, if you remember, just, you know, vague crime stuff, and other crimes. Uh, Dose was estimated to have more than 100 members, and it had been acquiring equipment for a BDSM dungeon. Among the orders, a steel puppy cage for those members most committed to growth. Given that Nexium has already been the subject of two TV documentary series, a podcast, four memoirs, and a Lifetime movie, it would be unfair to expect Berman's book, um, and that's what this is about, to present much in the new in the way of new insights about the cult. Berman provides some interesting details about Rainier's background in multi-level marketing scams and interviews one of Rainier's old schoolmates who remembers him unsurprisingly as an insecure bully. However, to the central question of how normal women wound up participating in Rainier's sadistic fantasies, and that's so often the question, you guys ask it all the time, I, you know, how would you end up in the cult? I would never be stupid enough to end up in a cult. And a couple episodes uh, uh, you know, ago, I said to you guys, don't be so sure, right? <clears throat> She offers essentially the same answer as everyone else. They were lured in by Rainier's purportedly life-changing self-actualization tech, a salad of borrowings from um, uh, EST Scientology and Ayn Rand, and then whacked with a raft of brainwashing techniques. They were gaslit, demoralized, sleep-deprived, put on starvation diets, isolated from their friends and family, and subjected to a scientifically a uh, dubious form of psychotherapy known as neurolinguistic programming. Like I think again, we all have an Achilles heel or we all have like this like want or need that is deep inside of us. And if someone figured out what that need or want was and how to properly manipulate it, I, I really truly believe we are all, uh, we could all be primed to become a member of a cult accidentally. Rainier was as uh, the U.S. attorney uh, whose office prosecuted the case put it, a modern-day Svengali and his followers were mesmerized pawns. I would even say on a small-scale level, like, you know, it's like the same as being like, you know, how many uh, strong people have found themselves in emotionally abusive relationships? Like, what is an emotionally uh, abusive relationship if not a cult for one, you know? Maybe you're the only member, but you're still a cult of insert man or woman's name here. Am I wrong? I'm not. Uh, until very recently, Berman argues we would not have recognized the victimhood of women who consented to their own abuse. It has taken the Me Too movement and with it a paradigm shift in our understanding of sexual abuse to even begin to realize that this kind of complicity does not disqualify women from seeking justice. This rather overstates the case, perhaps. Certainly, the FBI had been sluggish in responding to complaints about Nexium, and it, it seems like in all these cases of cults, they are sluggish because it's it's hard to prove a cult is a cult, right? And you know, part of being in America, especially, is that we do have the right of you know as individuals to engage in weird shit, right? That's our freedom, and so with that freedom. We also run the risk of not being able to be saved when we first need saving because something bad happening to us could also just look like us being weird and free. Um, and prosecutors were keener to pursue the cult in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. But with or without me, too, the legal argument against a man who used the threat of blackmail to keep women as his branded sex slaves would have been clear. In fact, Berman and others in the frame in framing the Nexium story as a Me Too morality tale about coerced consent 
are prone to exaggerate Rainier's mind-controlling powers. The fact that Rainier collected Compromat from DOS uh, members strongly suggests that his psychological coercion techniques were not by themselves sufficient to keep women acquiescent. Uh, a great many people were, after all, able to resist his spiral-eyed ministrations. They met him, saw a sinister little twerp with a center part who insisted on being addressed as vanguard, and sooner or later walked away. It is also striking that the degree of agency attributed to Nexium members seems to differ depending on how reprehensible their behavior in the cult was. While brainwashing is seen to have nullified the consent of Rainier's dose slaves, it is generally not felt to have diminished the moral or legal responsibility of women who committed crimes at his behest. Very Charles Manson right here. Lauren Salzman and the former television uh, actor Allison Mack. Did we did we talk about this on the show? Because I watched this. I think we did, right? Two of the five Nexium, um, the Nexium cults in general, two of the five Nexium women who have pleaded guilty to crimes committed while in the cult were both dose members and arguably more deeply in Rainier's thrall than most. Yet the media have consistently portrayed them as wicked lieutenants who cast themselves beyond the pale of sympathy by choosing to deceive and harm other women. This kind of only almost reminds me of the plot of the Saw movies, right? So you have Jigsaw at the top and then all the other people in the subsequent films who are helping Jigsaw um, with these horrible, like torturous uh, moral gadgets and, and moral deaths and moral challenges that he's putting on people. Those are mostly people who were Jigsaw's victims at one time um, and they escaped their moral slash physical uh, cages and tortures and then they go on uh, to take a liking to Jigsaw. He is able to convince them that um, even though he did something physically horrific and torturous to them, that he actually was teaching them a valuable moral lesson and that they were, uh, that they used to be bad people and that they have repented and and uh, they can do that same service to other people. Like it's, it's a very similar to that plot line, right? So it's very easy then or maybe not very easy to the naked eye, but having been through that trauma to then understand why people would go on after being victims themselves and end up uh, being, uh, giving, you know, harming other women, sorry, harming other women or harming other people. The term brainwashing uh, was originally used to describe the thought reform techniques developed by the Maoist government in China. Uh, its usage in connection with cults began in the early 70s. Big time for cults, right? <laughs> Big time for cults. Uh, stories of young people uh, being transformed into Manchurian candidate style zombies. Oh, and in the commune, uh, in the garden commune, the one person literally did go to learn survival techniques in case of a zombie apocalypse, and he wasn't joking. Um, uh, uh, so stories of young people being transformed into Manchurian candidate-style zombies stoked the paranoia of the era and, for a time, encouraged the practice of kidnapping and deprogramming cult members. Yet, despite the lasting hold of brainwashing on the public imagination— 
the scientific community has always regarded the term with some skepticism. Civil rights organizations and scholars of religion have strenuously objected to using an unproven and unprovable hypothesis to discredit the self-determination of competent adults. Attempts by former cult members to use the brainwashing defense to avoid conviction for crimes have repeatedly failed. Methods of coercive persuasion undoubtedly exist, but the notion of a foolproof method for destroying free will and reducing people to robots is now rejected by almost all cult experts. Even the historian and psychiatrist Robert Lifton, whose book Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism from 1961, provided one of the earliest and most influential accounts of coercive persuasion, has been careful to point out that brainwashing is neither all-powerful nor irresistible. In a recent, and this is, I guess, why it's so, uh, you know, one of the many reasons why it's so important to constantly work on your critical thinking. Like the same as, you know, when you're old, you want to be playing math games and word games so that you don't lose your mind. Uh, what's a mind, What's it's not worth having a mind if you can't, properly engage in critical thinking. In a recent uh, volume of essays, Losing Reality from 2019, he writes that cultic conversion generally involves an element of voluntary self-surrender, right? And that's why so often the people most susceptible to joining a cult, and this also goes for people most likely to join a religion or, you know, uh, are are uh, people who are having a really tough time personally, people who are, uh, you know, who uh, have been traumatized and are healing for something. People have gone through a, a bad divorce or a breakup or lost someone to death. Like those are the people who are really susceptible to joining a cult um, because they're lost and they're looking for something to attach to. But that is no different than religion. And obviously why, you know, 12-step programs like AA, like that's why they work so well. Because you're going there, you're going, fuck, I, uh, I am overtaken by this substance. I need something else more powerful to lead me. I'm in a bad place. I'm surrendering to this program. Voila, 12 steps. If we accept that cult members have some degree of volition, the job of distinguishing cults from other belief-based organizations becomes a good deal more difficult. We may recoil from Keith Ranier's brand of malevolent claptrap, but if he hadn't physically abused followers and committed crimes, would we be able to explain why Nexium is inherently more coercive or exploitative than any of the high-demand religions we tolerate? For this reason, many scholars choose to avoid the term cult altogether. Rainier may have set himself up as an unerring source of wisdom and sought to shut his minions off from outside influence, but apparently so did Jesus of Nazareth. The Gospel of Luke records him saying, quote, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yeah, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Okay? So even Jesus himself is saying, unless you come to me completely uh, broken and isolated from the people that you used to love, you're not going to be, you can't be my follower because your heart and your soul and your thoughts and your loyalties are already attached to someone else or multiple other people. 
religion, as the old joke has it, is just a cult plus time. Acknowledging that joining a cult requires an element of voluntary self-surrender also obliges us to consider whether the very relinquishment of control isn't a significant part of the appeal. In HBO's Nexium documentary, The Vow, uh, a seemingly – yeah, we definitely did it on this um, on this show because I'm like, I watched it. I just didn't couldn't remember it. We, we covered it on this show, but we did. A seemingly sadder and wiser former member says nobody joins a cult. Nobody. They join a good thing and then they realize they were fucked. The force of this statement is somewhat undermined when you discover that the man speaking is a veteran, not only of Nexium, but also of Ramtha's School of Enlightenment, a group in the Pacific Northwest led by a woman who claims to channel the wisdom of a Lemurian warrior from 35,000 years ago. To join one cult uh, may be considered a misfortune. To join two looks like a predilection for the cult experience. Not passive victims, they themselves actively sought to be controlled. Haruki Murakami wrote of the members of Om Shiriko, the cult whose sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway in 1995 killed 13 people. In his book, Underground, oh, I got to read that because I love Murakami, um, from 1997, Murakami describes most Aum members of having deposited all their precious personal holdings of selfhood in the spiritual bank of the cult's leader, Shoko Asahara, submitting to a higher authority, to someone else's uh, account of reality. And I mean, you even see this in pop culture. Like when we have this do no wrong attitude, we see it with Beyonce, we see it with Taylor Swift. Their fans are just will will support anything they do and will attack you online if you say anything against them. And I think, you know, that's, that, that to me is suspect. Um, Submitting to a higher authority to someone else's account of reality was, he claims, their aim. Robert Lifton suggests that people with certain kinds of personal history, trauma, are more likely to experience such a longing. Those with an early sense of confusion and dislocation or at the opposite extreme, an early experience of unusually intense family milieu control. But he stresses that the capacity for totalist submission lurks in all of us just like I said, and is probably rooted in childhood, the prolonged period of dependence during which we have no choice but to attribute to our parents an exaggerated omnipotence. This might help to um, uh, explain why so many cult leaders choose to style themselves as the fathers or mothers of their cult families. And again, we see that um, leaking over into the trend of calling our favorite celebrities, and you guys even do it to me sometimes, calling them mommy and daddy. That's cultish, right? It's funny, but it's fucking culty. Um, some scholars theorize that levels of religiosity and cultic affiliation tend to rise in proportion to the perceived uncertainty of an environment. The less control we feel we have over our circumstances, um, well, in groups and like jail and stuff, this can happen a lot, the more likely we are to entrust our fates to a higher power. Okay? 
Yeah, that's finding God on death row. That's like, I mean, you'd be you, anyone who makes it through like death row, like Damien Eccles, for instance, got really into um, like magic and stuff. Uh, and, you know, ICK. Uh, well, I mean, as did I, but uh, he was on death row. So like it was like he, he, he had nothing else. So he had to depend on this higher power to make it through, you know, 20 years on death row. Um, a classic example of this relationship was provided by the anthropologist Bronislaw Malinowski, who found that fishermen in the Trobriand Islands off the coast of New Guinea engaged in more magic rituals the farther out to sea they went. This propensity has been offered as an explanation for why cults proliferated during the social and political tumult of the 1960s, and while levels of religiosity have remained higher in America than in other industrialized countries. Americans, it is argued, experience uh, significantly more economic precarity than people in nations with stronger social safety nets and consequently are more inclined to seek alternative sources of comfort. The problem with any psychiatric or sociological explanation of belief is that it tends to have a slightly patronizing ring. People understandably grow irritated when told that their most deeply held convictions are their opium. Witness the outrage that Barack Obama faced when he spoke of jobless Americans in the Rust Belt clinging to guns or religion. Lauren Huff, in her collection of autobiographical essays, Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing, gives a persuasive account of the social and economic forces that may help to make cults alluring, while resisting the notion that cult recruits are merely defeated surrenderers. Huff spent the first 15 years of her life in the Children of God, a Christian cult in which pedophilia was understood to have divine sanction and women members were enjoined to become, as one former member recalled, God's whores. Despite Huff's enduring contempt for those who abused her, her experiences as a minimum wage worker in mainstream America have convinced her that what the Children of God preached about uh the inequity of the American system was actually correct. Yeah, I mean, even the fucking craziest groups or people are going to make a good point once, as we saw in Osama bin Laden's letter to America, when we when I go, yeah, he is making some really good commentary on the evils of capitalism, but also he wants to throw people gay, uh, you know, gay people off roofs. We are all complex individuals. The miseries and indignities that this country visits on its precariat class are enough, she claims, to make anyone want to join a cult. Yet people who choose to do so are not necessarily hapless creatures, uh, buffeted into delusion by social currents they do not comprehend. They are often idealists seeking to create a better world. And that's what we see. We definitely see that in the garden commune, you definitely see that people are going to, with good intentions, but you know, the pa the road to hell is paved with good intentions, that they want to create a better world. There's almost like, you, you know, anytime you see a documentary about a cult, I'm almost like inspired because you're like, there are so many people in the world that are not interested in making the world a better place that don't, aren't motivated for, you know, that don't think they can change, you know, they can change anything. Um, and unfortunately, their intentions are just like misguided often in these uh, cults, but like they do go in saying like, I see, I know that we as a group of people and we as a humanity can be better and I'm going to change my lifestyle um, to be better and to help other people become better. 
of her own parents' decision to join the children of God, she writes, all they saw was the misery wrought by greed, the poverty and war, the loneliness and the fucking cruelty of it all. So they joined a commune, a community where people shared what little they had, where people spoke of love and peace, a world without money, a cause, a family, picked the wrong goddamn commune, but who didn't? And you see that in the garden too. It's just like, it's uh, based on love and it's based about appreciating the world. And like, they're constantly getting in fights with each other. It's fucking 10 people in the commune and they can't even get along. People's attachment to an initial idealistic vision of a cult often keeps them in it long after experience would appear to have exposed the fantasy. The psychologist Leon Festinger proposed the theory of cognitive dissonance to describe the unpleasant feeling that arises when an established belief is confronted by clearly contradictory evidence. In the classic study, When Prophecy Fails, from 1956, Festinger and his co-authors relate what happened to a small cult in the Midwest when the prophecies of its leader, Dorothy Martin, did not come to pass. Martin, that's my favorite part of every documentary about a cult when when they're waiting on the prophecy and it was supposed to happen and it's like definitely not happening and everyone's like, did the prophecy stand us up? Martin claimed to have been informed by various disembodied beings that a cataclysmic flood would consume America on December 21, 1954. The flood ghosted us and that prior to this apocalypse on August 1st, 1954, she and her followers would be rescued by a fleet of flying saucers. When the aliens did not appear, some members of the group became disillusioned and immediately departed. Can you imagine like holding onto a cult that long and then when the aliens don't show up on the day the aliens said they're going to show up, that's when you're out? Wow. But others dealt with their discomfiture by doubling down uh, on their conviction. They not only stuck with Martin, but began for the first time to actively uh, proselytize about the imminent arrival of the saucers. The count- this counterintuitive response to dashed hopes anima- animates Akash Kapoor's Better to Have Gone, an account of Auroraville, an intentional community founded in southern India in 1968. Oroville was the inspiration of Blanche Alfasa, a French woman known to her spiritual followers as, you guessed it, the mother. She claimed to have learned from her guru, Sri Aurobindo, a system of integral yoga capable of affecting cellular transformation and ultimately granting immortality to its practitioners. She intended Oroville, uh, its name alludes both to Sri Aurobindo and to Aurore, the French word for dawn, to be the home of integ- um, integral yoga and the cradle of a future race of immortal supramental men and women. The mother does not appear to have had the totalitarian impulses of a true cult leader, but her teachings inspired a cult-like zealotry in her followers. When, five years after Oroville's founding, she failed to achieve the long-promised cellular transformation and died at the age of 95, the fledgling community went slightly berserk. She never prepared us for the possibility that she would leave her body. Even the language that they're using for this cult is very similar to the language that we heard the cult using in Love Has Won, uh, the cult of Mother God. They talk about leaving her body. And also you kind of see the cult fall apart a little bit when 
Mother God dies because that was not supposed to happen and they don't know what to do, right? And that's why they kind of broke off into their own little sects after that. Um, This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Guys, sometimes in life we're faced with tough choices and the path forward, it's it's unclear. We don't know where we're going. But whatever kind of decisions you need to make, if you need to make a decision about your job, your career, a relationship you're in or you're not in, uh, how to navigate things with friends or family uh, or just kind of what you're doing with your life, uh, therapy can be super helpful. I have definitely benefited from therapy uh, mostly in times where something specifically traumatizing was happening, but also just in the day to day, sometimes you get on and you think that you don't have anything to talk about and you realize, oh, wow, I, I did need someone to talk to who didn't have any stake in the game, who didn't have a bias and, mo- you know, most importantly, who I'm paying. So they really have to be paying attention and giving me a thoughtful response. Like there is something to that. And there is something about coming into relationships with a fresh perspective and not continually using your friend or your partner as your therapist, because that's not their role. They're there to help you through certain things in life, but they're not there to be your constant sounding board, right? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And of course, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Uh, You've often heard me say uh, finding a therapist that works for you is like dating. So don't be... saddened or disappointed or discouraged if the first therapist that you match with, like if you don't feel like they get your vibe, that's okay. And that's totally normal. And you will find someone who does catch your vibe. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash WAC today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash W-A-C. Now, back to Without a Country. Uh, Let's see. I was totally blown away. Actually, I'm still in shock. To preserve the mother's vision, a militant group of believers known as the collective shut down schools, burned books in the town library, shaved their heads, and tried to drive off those members of the community whom they considered insufficiently devout. Kapoor and his wife both grew up in Oroville, and he interweaves his history of the community with the story of his wife's mother, Diane Mays, and her boyfriend, John Walker, a pair of Orovillian pioneers who became casualties of what he calls the search for perfection. (laughs) Aren't we all casualties of that, my guy? In the 70s, Diane suffered a catastrophic fall while helping to build Oroville's architectural centerpiece, the Mother's Temple. In deference to the Mother's teaching, she rejected long-term treatment and focused on achieving cellular transformation. She never walked again. When John contracted a severe parasitic illness, he refused medical treatment too and eventually died. Shortly afterward, Diane committed suicide, 
hoping to join him and the mother in eternal life. Kapoor is, by his own account, a person who both mistrusts faith and envies it, who lives closer to the side of reason, but suspects that his skepticism may represent a failure of the imagination. Although he acknowledges that Diane and John's commitment to their spiritual beliefs killed them, he is not quite prepared to call their faith misplaced. There was, he believes, something noble, even exalted, about the steadfastness of their conviction. And while he is appalled by the fanaticism that gripped Oroville, he is grateful for the sacrifices of the pioneers. Oroville ultimately survived its cultural revolution. The militant frenzy of the collective subsided, and the community was placed under the administration of the Indian government. Kapoor and his wife, after nearly 20 years away, returned there to live. Fifty years after its founding, Oroville may not be the ideal city of immortals that the mother envisioned. Uh, envisaged, uh, but it is still, Kapoor believes, a testament to the devotion of its pioneers. I'm proud that despite our inevitable compromises and appeasements, we've nonetheless managed to create a society, or at least the embers of a society, that is somewhat egalitarian, and that endeavors, again, egalitarian, big word in a garden commune, and that endeavors to move beyond the materialism that engulfs the rest of the planet. Again, a lot of conversation in these things always about materialism, right? right? Because when you strip people of materialism, they're also easier to control. They got nothing, right? Uh, Kapoor gives too sketchy a portrait of present-day Oroville for us to confidently judge how much of a triumph the town, population 3300, really represents, or whether integral yoga was integral to its success. Norway has figured out how to be somewhat egalitarian without the benefit of a guru's numinous wisdom. Whether or not one shares Kapoor's admiration for the spiritual certainties of his forefathers and mothers, it seems possible that Oroville prospered in spite of, rather than because of, these certainties. That what in the end saved the community from cultic madness and eventual implosion was precisely not faith, not the mother's totalist vision, but pluralism, tolerance, and the dull compromises and appeasements of civic life. Far from Oroville, it's tempting to take pluralism and tolerance for granted, but both have fared poorly in internet age America. The silos of political groupthink created by social media have turned out to be ideal settings for the germination and dissemination of extremist ideas and alternative realities. And I think that's like a really great thesis right there in and of itself and really speaks to the Garden Commune because that started, they like these cults see the power of social media and the tool that they were using, TikTok, to uh, indoctrinate others uh, unfortunately, was their initial undoing. But then also there will always be people that were like, well, of course, the FBI is going to be researching you because we're doing something profound here. And they don't want you to do something profound. They want you to continue on in the quote cult that you are in, which is an American, which is American capitalism. Uh, and again, you know, we some might raise their eyebrows or roll their eyes at um, the Garden Commune calling American capitalism a cult. But by definition, I actually do agree with them. It is also a cult because cult, again, loosey-goosey, just like terrorist. To date, the most significant and frightening cultic phenomenon to arise from social media is QAnon. Uh, there's a documentary about that, too, that we can get into. According to some observers, the QAnon movement does not qualify as a proper cult. And I would really disagree with that. Um, 
because it lacks a single charismatic leader. Oh, that's a, but but it can be a concept too, right? It doesn't have to be a leader. It can be a singular concept. Um, I guess that's the least cultish thing about the Garden Commune is that there is not one uh, charismatic leader. Although there are fights throughout the series for who becomes who can become a leader. Um, Donald Trump is a hero of the movement, but not its controller. Q, the online presence whose gnomic briefings, Q drops, form the basis of the QAnon mythology, is arguably a leader of sorts, but the army of gurus and promoters who decode, interpret, and embroider Q's utterances have shown themselves perfectly capable of generating doctrine and inciting violence in the absence of Q's directives. But isn't that also isn't that also comparable to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's teachings, right? Like, so Jesus Christ, you know, dropped this, his teachings in the Bible, isn't around to kind of, you know, generate doctrine and incite violence anymore, but people still do it. People still interpret in his name all the time. Q has not posted anything since December. Uh, I mean, I, I think with these definition, you'd be hard pressed to say, to argue that Christianity is not a cult. Uh Q has not posted anything since December. Uh, and that's actually, oh, this actually goes off too because, you know, I've been getting super back in touch with Wicca again. And one of my favorite things about Wicca, paganism, magic, whatever, is that there is not a singular uh, leader. There is not this person we are praying for. It is unique for everyone. And we are all using our own uh, the nature and our own passed on loved ones, our spirit guides, our ancestors, as the people who are guiding guiding us. And that is one of the more free elements of that religion or, you know, uh, spirituality that I really love because this the sing this singular all-knowing all right leader uh, of these religions or of groups is one of the main things that bothers me about organized religion. Uh, Q has not po and fame in general, fa like celebrity, all these kind of concepts. The the singular leader who we all say you are right, you are perfect, you are better than us. That that really bothers me. Um, Q has not posted anything since December, but the prophecies and conspiracies have continued to proliferate. It's possible that our traditional definition of what constitutes a cult organization will have to adapt to the internet age and a new model of crowdsourced cult. Liberals have a good reason to worry about the political reach of QAnon. A survey published in May by the Public Religion Research Institute found that 15% of Americans subscribe to the central QAnon belief that the government is run by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles and that 20% uh, believe that there is a storm coming soon that will sweep away the elites in power and restore the rightful leaders. A lot of energy of that in the garden. Yet anxiety about the movement tends to be undercut by laughter at the presumed imbecility of its members. Some of the attorneys representing QAnon followers who took part in the invasion of the Capitol have even made this their chief line of defense. Albert Watkins, who represents Jacob Chansley, the bare-chested Q shaman, recently told a reporter that his client and other defendants were, and I quote, 
People with brain damage, they're fucking retarded. Mike Rothschild in his book. (laughs) Does that fucking lawyer know Robert, the Ugandan lawyer from No White Saviors? Because they use the same language. Mike Rothschild in his book about the QAnon phenomenon, The Storm is Upon Us, argues that such good reading lists that we should be making from all of these articles. If anyone has been jotting down these titles uh, along our journey here on Without a Country, please email me, Without a Country podcast at gmail.com um argues that contempt and mockery for QAnon beliefs have led people to radically underestimate the movement. Um, and even now, and I think that's really why we didn't see January 6th coming, because of the mockery uh, um, that we have made of these people. And again, it's it's this uh, it's this liberal el- elitism that uh, bites us in the butt, right? You know, because even if they're incorrect, they still have the ability to uh, talk with each other and fucking mobilize. Um, and even now keep us from engaging seriously with its threat. Just because an idea is 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 not true doesn't mean it can't pose a threat. And I think that's what we're learning in, in modern times. Uh, the QAnon stereotype of a white American's conservative driven to joylessness by their sense of persecution by liberal elites. There we go. It's like a fucking a psychic here. Uh, ought not to blind us from the fact that many of Q's followers, like the members of any cult movement, uh, are people seeking meaning and purpose, which seeking meaning and purpose is what gets basically all of us for the entirety of our lives into some real pickles. For all of the crimes and violent ideation we've seen, many believers truly want to play a role in making the world a better place. We want to be important. We want to be remembered. We want to make a difference. But we don't want to actually roll up our sleeves and put in the years and years of work and intelligence and studying that it takes. So instead, join a cult. Uh, it's And I was thinking that when I was watching The Garden. I was like, yeah, these people want to make a difference. But like none of them are really smart. They don't come from money, you know. And so like they're, they're like, what can I do to make me feel like I'm helping when I actually feel so powerless? Um and you know how can you not have empathy for the, these people who want to uh, provoke change, who who want things to be better, but like just weren't set up with a level of um, you know education or money or power or status to really be able to do so in our in our society. It's not just the political foulness of QAnon that makes us uh, disinclined to empathize with its followers. We harbor a general sense of superiority to those who are taken in by cults. And that's everyone who said, how would you be so fucking stupid to join a cult? And and I've I've said that for sure. But I think after, you know, studying, you know, in my Netflix uh, and chill sort of way, studying cults, I... Uh, I think that uh, sense of superiority has has fizzled a bit because I think, yeah, I I, I challenge someone to try and get me a cult. I, I think it is possible. And I'm sure, you know, I'm, I am a member of some cult. I mean, comedy, I would definitely think is a cult for sure. Um, books and documentaries routinely warn that any of us could be ensnared, uh, that it's merely a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I think it's more... I think it's less being in the wrong place at the wrong time than uh, than the alignment of whatever your your weak spot is and like having someone uh, correctly uh, like correctly see what that is and have a plan on how to manipulate you based on that. So I guess a, a little bit of that is wrong place, wrong time, that the average cult convert is no stupider than anyone else. I would agree with that for sure. Um 
some cults, including alum uh, Shinriko. And also, when you think about it, like being intelligent, I'm not particularly intelligent, as many of you have pointed out, but it's true. I'm not like, if we took a test, I would get like an average, like slightly above average score, but it's not not a score that's going to wow you. Um, but what it is, is like, I ha- but I definitely have a stronger sense of self and um, more critical thinking skills than many people who are uh, much, much, much book smarter than me. And so that is what it is. That's what I'm leaning into on these sh- on, you know, shows or when I when I do my work. It's not that I'm I don't and I and I know that I am not book smarter than anyone else. But it's like, how are we judging smartness? I, I, you know, tests and stuff to me, that level of smartness, like kind of becomes meaningless at, when you're out of school. And the critical thinking and ability to advocate for yourself and stuff becomes how you are like a smart person in the world. It becomes a lot stronger, like it's a much more stronger of a need than to be able to divide a big number or something. Um, Let's see. Let's see. Uh, Some cults, including alum Shinriko, have attracted disproportionate numbers of highly educated, accomplished recruits. Yet our sense that joining a cult requires some unusual degree of credulousness or gullibility persists. Few of us believe in our heart of hearts that Amy Carlson, the recently deceased leader of the Colorado-based Love Has Won cult, who claimed to have birthed the whole of creation and to have been in a previous life a daughter of Donald Trump, could put us under her spell. The variable in that documentary, though, and why I was um, I was interested in it, but I didn't f- I feel like it lacked some cult stuff was because of the high, high levels of substance abuse in that cult. And you don't see that in the garden. And it's actually part of um, the rules of the garden commune that you can't do drugs and you can't um, drink. Perhaps one way to attack our intellectual hubris on this matter is to remind ourselves that we all hold some beliefs for which there is no compelling evidence. The convictions that Jesus was the Son of God and that everything happens for a reason are older and more widespread than the belief in Amy Carlson's privileged access to the fifth dimension, but neither is ultimately more rational. And what a beautiful point that is. In recent, you know, is it any more rational to believe that a guy was killed on the cross and then moved a rock and came back to life? Uh, In recent decades, scholars have grown increasingly adamant that none of our beliefs, rational or otherwise, have much to do with logical reasoning. People do not deploy the powerful human intellect to dispassionately analyze the world, William J. Bernstein writes in The Delusions of Crowds. Instead, they rationalize how the facts conform to their emotionally derived preconceptions. Bernstein's book, A Survey of Financial and Religious Manias, is inspired by Charles McKay's 1841 work, Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. McKay saw crowd dynamics as central to phenomena, as uh, disparate as the South Sea bubble, the Crusades, uh, witch hunts, and alchemy. Bernstein uses the lessons of evolutionary psychology and neuroscience to elucidate some of McKay's observations and argues that our propensity to go nuts en masse is determined in part by a hardwired weakness for stories. Humans understand the world through narratives. And that's why going into the 2024 election, and especially um, the Democrats do that, we do have a weakness for stories. And that's why when we're talking about especially human interest things like, you know, uh, women's rights, that they will tell a story about a specific person and sometimes scan to them in the crowd because 
because it helps us uh, to have empathy um, more. I personally fucking hate that. It annoys the crap out of me when the New York Times includes like, you know, 80, 80 anecdotes in an article when I just want the facts. But, um, uh, you know, many humans do, as they say, we're hardwired for a weakness for stories. <clears throat> Guys, we fucked. It's a whole fucking podcast using that tactic, basically, uh, hardwired for, you know, for the weakness of stories. However, uh, however much we flatter ourselves about our individual rationality, a good story, no matter how analytically deficient, um, and they're talking more about like the stories of like Jesus. I'm talking about like human interest stories, but a story is a story. <clears throat> Lingers in the mind, resonates emotionally, and persuades more than the most dispositive facts or data. It's important to note that Bernstein is referring not just to the stories told by cults, but also to ones that lure people into all manner of cons, including financial ones. Not all delusions are mystical. Bernstein's phrase, a good story, is possibly misleading, since a lot of stories peddled by hucksters and cult leaders are, by any conventional liter literary standard, rather bad. What makes them work is not their plot, but their promise. Here is an answer to the problem of how to live. Uh, or here is a way to become rich beyond the dreams of avarice. Or in the case of uh, escaping twin flames, here is how you find your soulmate. Here is how you are in love forever. Here is how you are not alone in this world anymore. In both cases, the promptings of common sense, is it a bit odd that aliens have chosen just me and my friends to save from destru destruction of America? Is it likely that Bernie Madoff has a foolproof system that can earn all his investors 10% a year, are effectively obscured by the loveliness of the fantasy prospect? And once you have entered into the delusion, you are among people who have all made the same commitment, who are all similarly intent on maintaining the lie. And that's how we continue to do open mics again and again and shows in bars for turkey sandwiches because we are all chasing, you know, this dragon of fame and we see some of our friends get it, right? So it feels really fucking real. The process... Um, by which people are eventually freed from their cult delusions rarely seems to be accelerated by the interventions of well-meaning outsiders. Those who embed themselves in a group idea learn very quickly to dismiss the skepticism of others as the foolish cant of uninitiated. If we ac accept the premise that our beliefs are rooted in emotional attachments rather than in cool assessments of evidence, there is little reason to imagine that rational debate will break the spell. The good news is that rational ob objections to flaws in cult doctrine or to hypocrisies on the part of a cult leader do have a powerful impact if and when they occur to cult members themselves. The analytical mind may be quiet, uh, uh, quietened by cult think, but it is rarely deadened altogether. Especially if cult life is proving unpleasant, the capacity for critical thought can reassert itself. Rothschild interviews several QAnon followers who became disillusioned after noticing a dangling thread that once pulled unraveled the whole tapestry of QAnon lore. It may seem unlikely that someone who has bought into the idea of Hillary Clinton drinking the blood of children can be uh, bouleversé uh, by, say, 
a trifling error in the date in dates, but the human mind is a mysterious thing. Sometimes it is a fact remembered from grade school that unlocks the door to sanity. One of the former Scientologists interviewed in Alex Gibney's documentary, Going Clear, reports that after a few years in the organization, she experienced her first inklings of doubts when she read L. Ron Hubbard's account of an intergalactic overlord exploding A-bombs in Vesuvius and Etna, 70 five million years ago. The detail that aroused her suspicions wasn't especially outlandish. Whoa, she remembers thinking, I studied geography in school. Those volcanoes didn't exist 75 million years ago. Wow. What, a, what an article. I wonder how, my, how long it talk, took the author to write that article. That was like a fucking book in an article. Uh, actually, one of my favorite articles that we've ever read on this show and so many incredible uh, recommendations for reading in that that article again was from the new yorker by zoe heller um all right so that was like the core of the show kind of like what is a cult right because if you watch uh the garden uh docuseries i again on i'm you know going i'm starting episode five i'm going into episode five and I am not convinced it's a cult yet, although there is a new member who just passed his 10 days and was voted in. And it seems like uh, in the way they're editing it, for sure, that, you know, he has proposed um, in no uncertain terms. He actually used the word cult that like him and his wife should be the leaders and that it should be uh, less of an egalitarian society um, and more of a cult and the one of the more charismatic members of uh, the commune says, you know, the language you're using right now is scaring me. Um, although I think part of the reason it was scaring him and that guy, the guy's name is Tree, who is the member of the commune, who's um, pretty charismatic. I think Tree secretly fancies himself and his wife, Julia, as the people who are going to be the cult leaders if there are cult leaders. Because you can use the term egalitarian, which, as a reminder, means relating to or believing in the principle that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. You can use that term till you're blue in the face um, and to convince the people who you ultimately force to, uh, you know, uh, agree with you that it is an egalitarian society. But it's, you know... It is natural for some human beings to be leaders and some to be followers. And so anytime you have a group, there is someone who people will feel confident in following, who will make people feel safe, who will have that charisma, who will have those ideas and who people who who will, whether by force or by nature, just become one of the leaders of the group. Um so yeah, the the group specifically is oh wait, so there's this one guy who's not Tree and not Julia. Tree and Julia are the people who kind of made the the, the garden go viral on TikTok. Um, but there was another there's another guy um who whose name forgets me. There's like eight Tylers in the documentary. Um and he is the originator of the garden. And he is the individual who was born into the rainbow collect the rainbow family, the rainbow collective. So he really had no shot. All he knows is this kind of cult or communal living. Um, 
yeah, a lot of AI, a lot of zombie attacks. Uh, so if we can go to the TikToks for a second, and I do want to point out that go to Julia's first. Uh, so again, Julia and Tree, who you'll see in a second, they are married. They met when they were like traveling or something. And then, of course, they were kind of um, just taking a look at all these many alternative communities. And when I found Julia on TikTok or when I looked Julia up on TikTok, one of the things that concerned me and pointed to, you know, this is a cult more than this isn't a cult or this is just a commune is that Julia's TikTok handle is Julia Talk God. I think anytime, and again, we saw Chris D'Elia do it. Isn't it how weird how many, how many, um, how these cult documentaries make me think of Chris D'Elia, how there are so many overlaps and similarities to Chris fucking D'Elia, um, the branding, the, uh, but referring to himself as God, like that was something that we heard that he did, right? So Julia Talk God, wow, if you're not running a cult, that's kind of a wild thing to write on TikTok. Is it a, you can't get to TikTok? No, I have it up. I oh. just don't, I don't know what, uh, what video you wanted because it's, it's crashing every time I click that link. Uh, oh, okay. Um, no, it's not, I wasn't a specific. I just have her page. Bring it up. Yeah, it wasn't, no, it wasn't a specific video. I just had her handle. I was going to just, ha you know, show a couple of the pinned videos. I didn't have time to watch all her, all, every single one of her fucking TikToks. Really? You didn't have eight days? Yeah, no. Seeing how frequently she posts? Yeah, no, no, no. I didn't have eight days. Come to the commune if they want. And all these people have just been showing up out of nowhere, helping us out. This guy showed up today and brought us a radio tower. So yeah, you can come too. 8967 Galen Road, Lafayette. So we posted on TikTok. And it's Lafayette, Tennessee, I believe. There's like, a, they, have, they have a place in, um, I think, Minnesota and a place in Tennessee. Um, but also, like if they're giving out the address, it's on TikTok. Like, I mean, come on. I'm almost, I almost want to go hang out there for 10 days. 3.6 stars on Google. Oh, it has a Google reading. <laughs> I didn't look it up. That's so funny. 3.6 3. isn't bad for a place where you have to shit in holes. Pretty solid. Right? I want to see what the five-star reviews are, what the one-star reviews are. <laughs> yeah, read, read us a one-star review from the commune. Uh, okay. Uh, four months ago, horrible place, drunks and losers everywhere. Oh, drunks. I was not welcomed, was not welcoming at all. Uh -huh. Just about everyone is poisoning their lungs with cig smoke. So I can't socialize without being poisoned. The only person you're outside. <laughs> the only person there walked by my vehicle, vehicle complaining. He just sits in his van all the time. No one who lives there was welcoming at all. And then someone else who was staying there told me they charge you $10 a day to park or they require you to work their gardens or something, which means there's no freedom there. They don't tell you tell you about the $10 a day expectation. It's not even on their website. He's, drove, acti he's acting like it's fucking Six Flags. <laughs> I drove hundreds of miles to be duped by a bunch of liars. I emailed them, asked a question. After several months, absolutely no response. Trashy place. Oh, wait. So wait, there's a website? What's the website? I, w I didn't even look for a website because I didn't think it would have a website. I don't know. Can it's you, just... but it's not in the Google or Yelp? Um, yeah, it says it's missing all that stuff. But oh, uh, the free garden. It says it's egalitarian. So I'm assuming this is the website. Yeah, bring up this website. Um, formerly known as Shut Up and Grow. Shut Up and Grow It. Yeah, that's their symbol, I believe. The garden, the garden. 
Shut Up and Grow It isn't – I they probably had to change their name because of the initial 2021 TikTok drama. And also, like, I, I could understand being pissed about the parking because you're like, you know, it's kind of like an anti-capitalist place. But – to be expected is a commune like yeah like yeah there's equal duties like yeah you are you will be expected to contribute some sort of skill yeah you have to work in the garden because like they're feeding you for free they're providing you yeah you have to do something of course and it's so funny because there are multiple people who go and don't feel welcomed uh that's a common theme on the on the docuseries i i also think like these julia and tree are so thirsty for attention they have a youtube um they have a youtube uh podcast where they stand the whole time which is the weirdest part of it um they don't just sit in chairs when they're talking they like stand for an hour and talk and uh i i feel like we could get them on the show or at least one of them I'm very curious. Dude, I want to get Tree on. Yeah. I watched just a bit. I saw enough yeah. just to see Tree yeah. hanging. That guy seems like a swell fellow. Well, he's from um he's from England and then he lived in Ireland and then he came to the US. Makes and sense. He looks like a Lord of the Rings character. He does. And uh it's just funny. Yeah. It's just funny listening to someone talk about how they don't need material possessions when they have a single dangling hoop earring in. You know, um, can you bring up uh, Trees TikTok? Oh, I was gonna say their merch. How sick is that? Okay, let's just start. I, that looks like something your your fiance would. Yeah, wear. I'm gonna buy that for Alex for her birthday. <laughs> don't like, and also don't tell her no. what it's associated with, so she's just fucking walking around. Yeah, just a possible <laughs> yeah possible cult wear. Do they have a small one for Aura too? Because that would be cool as hell. I'm not gonna put that on my baby. <laughs> on your wife Come to on be now. only on your wife to be yeah. i feel like aura has the perfect name though because they do like there are some real names for uh like they're they're like they're one of the person's names is vibe at the garden and i loved that it yeah. was vibe oak was another person i could see you spending four months dating vibe yeah vibe is a girl but yeah an older she's an older vibe whatever is, vibe is an older woman <laughs> so who if she wasn't on the commune would, would just be sitting at a slot machine in ac <laughs> and that's what i love about vibe <laughs> and she and then the best part of vibe is she has terrible energy <laughs> yeah oh my god she's the worst energy in the commune vibe has the worst energy maybe that's what it is that was her nickname at another commune it was it's like, like sarcastic yeah, check out vibe over here <laughs> I love hanging out with vibe. <laughs> and she just brought that with her. She's like, hey, I guess this is what hippies call me. <laughs> yeah, it's like if my nickname on the commune was Sweetie Pie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take it easy, Happy. <laughs> All right, let's pull up Tree's TikTok. Is sunshine over here? Um, what? I'm surprised. He hasn't. He, none of the pin ones have gone to a million. This is it? Because, like, because, like, this, I, I maybe his initial one was taken down because, like, TikTok is what like got the FBI investigating. So these are really fucking low numbers. What's this? Is there one? Is there any where they're dumpster diving? Uh, I don't see any of those. I mean, those aren't pinned. Oh. Um, What's this six thirty seven one? Uh. Oh yeah. So this is one of the school buses that they live in. Is that vibe? That's not vibe. No. Oh. Some of them are hot, but can you imagine how they smell? Genuinely, you get used to it. Ew. How no, do you... no, no, no. I'm saying like you don't notice yeah. that it smells. Yeah. That's my point. 
Naraya, who gets kicked out, I really liked. And then there's another chick, um, Jag, who I really like. And there's another woman, uh, Zans, who I really like. Those are those are the people I would hang out with if yep. I was there. I did see a lot of hot people, but there's no I don't. Care. I didn't say they were hot. No, I saw I I did. I saw a lot of hot people on that bus, but there's no amount of hot people that could get me listening to that many white people playing acoustic guitar. Wow. No, that's crazy. I love folk music. There was nine acoustic guitars in one small bus. I see. All right. So then, so we go through the episodes, and then uh, this is actually. The, the the docuseries happens after the TikTok drama, but what initially got everyone interested in this cult slash commune is their TikTok account. And I found a Vice article because, of course, if anyone's going to um, talk about it, it's Vice. Of course, this isn't, isn't coming up now. Um, is uh, And that is what uh, this article is about. So this is this is actually pre-documentary, not post-documentary. Uh, Garden Commune. I have to pull it up again. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess they also did like a Vice documentary on it as well. Vice does some really good work. And it's um, um, annoying because in modern times, uh, Vice is incredible like – just kind of like subculture documentaries are overshadowed by annoying political pieces uh, that are super far left, uh, but they really make some really fucking fantastic content or have over the years. Is that article not coming up for you either? I, I It was up before for me and now it's not coming up at all. Because I have to read it off the screen. It better fucking come up. It's the only article on this. Okay, cool. All right, so... What's the title? I need to see it. So this is called uh, Vice. Here's what uh, Vice is where it's from. Here's what happened at the TikTok commune after it closed to the public. And again, it has since then reopened. I mean, not, not to the public. They, I think they changed their process where you have this like 10 day period again, that they ha- and then they have to vote you in. But you, you still can email um, as far as I know and be, try to become part of it. <clears throat> And you can also join Sam's Club. All right. We spoke to the uh, gardens, Julia and Tree, uh, about what it was like to be at the center of a conspiracy theory calling the intentional community a cult. Again, a lot of the same language, intentional community. We hear that a lot. This article. To be fair, Sam's Club. What? To be fair, Sam's Club. Is a cult? Kind of a boomer cult. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There are so many cults. and, and, And I think that. Yeah, so when we're using them, like we are using it by the proper definition. Uh, This is from May of 2021. As a reminder, so pre this HBO Max documentary, when Julia Heim and Tree arrived at the garden, oh, she's Jewish, uh, a 21.5 acre tract of land in Tennessee, they felt like they'd finally found the sort of community they'd been looking for. Two self-described hippies who met en route to a protest on behalf of the indigenous Sami, Sami people in Norway. They'd been traveling together for over a year, documenting their experiences, visiting different communes and land experiments and posting them on youtube 
They wanted to learn about living more closely to the land and the garden, which describes itself as an off-grid intentional community with an educational focus, seemed like the perfect place to get their hands dirty. After the pair moved into a converted school bus on the property, Heim set about learning about construction. Tree initially planned to capture scenes of life on the farm for a documentary, then pivoted to making TikTok videos after he learned that other members of the garden had seen success using the app to drum up interest around the place. What they didn't know was that within a few months' time, they'd become two of the most visible faces of a viral conspiracy theory claiming that the garden was a cult. And again, like you see it, like it's clips of like other people just as the same as it's been a problem for many uh, investigators in crimes that the people on TikTok get involved and start fancying themselves amateur detectives. The same thing is like, again, like to, to me, what I've seen so far, it's not a cult. It's just a group of like kind of annoying, gross hippies that like to hang out together, but they're not doing anything wrong. Right. Um, and uh, everyone's like, this is a cult. This is a cult. When in reality, I don't think people realize just how freely you can live um, under American law. And again, time and time again, we see in many of these cult documentaries, the police showing up, the FBI showing up, people saying, you know, why weren't the police called? It's like, well, if you want to join a cult in this way, like you actually are allowed to. And I think that's a good thing. And the, the problem is when you become a danger to yourself, but we're all dangerous to ourselves, you know? All right. <clears throat> the story that unfolded as chronicled in a new documentary by Vice directed by uh, Molly Wertheimer was a messy one. One that saw amateur web sleuths unearth. I'm so fucking psychic. Uh, unearthing all sorts of unflattering material on the garden from claims of alleged animal mistreatment. See one story that circulated about residents shooting and eating a cat that was stalking their chickens. And they talk about that. That's brought up a lot in this docuseries. But the thing is, like when you're living off the land, right? You're going to you're going to hunt and kill animals. They're not vegetarians. They never claim to be. And although it, it seems weird in America to eat a cat, I don't really see the difference between shooting a cat. And this was like a wild cat. It wasn't someone's pet cat um, between shooting a cat, a stray cat and then eating it. And they did make a hat out of it, which, again, weird. But like, how is it weirder than shooting a deer, eating deer meat and, and, and uh, hanging the antlers in your living room? I don't see any difference at all. <clears throat> this, uh, let's see. Uh, to pass criminal charges against individuals with alleged ties to the place, uh, to maps showing uh, the garden's apparent geographical proximity to a handful of historical sundown towns, a term used to describe all white communities during and after the Jim Crow era that excluded people from co of color from living there or passing through after dark, sometimes using violence. Um, there's a many uh, black people in the garden commune and there's an indigenous person. I don't know if there's any Latino people, but it's, it's extremely diverse, surprisingly diverse because it seems like the kind of shit that only white people will do. But there are a number um, of people of color in the in the garden commune. 
Uh, in an interview with Input, one former resident expressed concerns about the garden's attitude toward COVID-19 safety. People are not required to wear masks. They're fucking outside. And said he worried about COVID denial and QAnon beliefs in the community. Other people on the internet criticized the garden for not subjecting residents to background checks. Yeah, a lot of them are criminals. But again, we saw that in the Mother God cult as well, because it's like uh, when you get out of prison, when, you, when you've served your time and you get out of jail or prison... Uh, we we have a terrible process for reintroducing um you know, uh, inmates or, or former inmates into society. That's one of the biggest problems uh, in this country, I would actually say. People serve a 10-year prison sentence, come out, and are so fucking depressed, have no idea how to navigate the current landscape, that they often want to go back to jail because they don't know how to live out here. And so uh, for, you know, coming out of jail and living in this kind of intentional community actually makes perfect sense. So it makes sense why it would be appealing to someone who just got out of of jail, who is not accepted in mainstream society. Um, Other people... Uh, let's, uh, other people on the internet criticized the garden for not subjecting residents to background checks while posting what amounted to an open invitation for young people on TikTok to show up there. <clears throat> residents of the garden have roundly denied the cult allegation with some community members attempting to run damage control by posting explanatory and sometimes ahem imaginative videos on TikTok with varying degrees of success. On March 26, again, this is 2021, however, the garden announced that it was closing its doors to the public. Yeah, because they fucking, you guys don't deserve them anymore. Amid the storm of online attention, members of the community had started receiving threats of violence. At one point, residents say Child Protective Services and Animal Control showed up. I will say the part of the of the, the garden that's bothered me so uh, the most so far is that there are they are there are some people raising children there and like beliefs aside like it's just it doesn't seem like a place that is good for good for kids but you know kids are subjected to many bad things and there's dogs there but like the dogs are outside and they're having a great time Probably a great, it's probably actually thumbs up for dogs. Uh, uh, so Child Protective Services and Animal Control showed up and the Vice documentary Tree Claims neither found anything concerning. Speaking to Vice's documentary crew, Milo, the creator of a TikTok account called The Cult Talk Guy and one of the Garden's most outspoken critics, maintains that it was irresponsible of the Garden to publish its address online while insisting that it was a safe space for everyone. There's people with marginalized identities, L- L- LGBTQ people, women, people of color, who needs safe places to go right now, he said. And marketing this as that safe space seems A, untrue, and B, potentially malicious. I mean, it's a bunch of weirdos. It's very safe for those types of people. Uh, and I actually, you know, four episodes in, haven't seen anything weird happening uh, with uh, chicks. There is a upcoming episode where it looks like the guy who said him and his wife should be the cult leaders who's very new to the group is trying to get this 25-year-old to uh, like fuck his bisexual wife and maybe have a threesome, but that's just straight man behavior. <clears throat> Not that it's okay. Mike, put your fucking hand down. Um, let's see. Uh, eventually, he retracted his claim that the garden was a cult. He even began encouraging people to stop harassing Tree. As of Monday morning, the day after the documentary's release, Milo, the cult talk guy, uh, his account has been taken offline. <clears throat> 
In late May, Vice caught up with Tree and Julia to find out what happened at the garden and in their lives after the cameras stopped rolling. One thing they wanted to clear up off the bat was that the garden was always more of a revolving door for people wanting to learn more about things like permaculture and building outdoor kitchens and composting toilets than anyone's permanent residence, which is why a lot of people show up in this new docuseries. And the and the funniest part is it's like they do show up wanting to learn these survival skills. And then it turns out like they don't really know anything and it's not really that well constructed of a commune like the facilities they have the kitchens the bathrooms like none of them are that good it's just a bunch of people who have hoarded some weird pieces and pulled up with you know sinks and spare parts from home depot in the back of their flatbed truck like no one really knows anything one of the funniest scenes is that the survivalist guy who's obese and has like sciatica and can't help at all and everyone's mad at him for it but he shows up you know because he's one of these people who's afraid of the zombie apocalypse and wants to protect his family and he has a pair of oakley's on and he's tree is trying to teach him how to like do some kind of weird agriculture farming and he keeps using the word microbes and the guy is like oh, I don't know what microbes are. Can you explain that what that is to me? And then Tree's like, yeah, I don't know what microbes are either. And the guy's like, well, then why do you keep using a word when you don't know what it is and you're not really teaching me a skill at all? And he's disappointed because he thinks he's going to like meet these military-grade survivalists when in reality he just met a bunch of hippies. Um, accordingly... When we spoke, uh, they were back on the road co-hosting a series of educational workshops in Crestone, Colorado, with a group of people from the garden as part of the Permaculture Mutual Aid Network, a web of intentional communities and agricultural products across the U.S., projects across the U.S., united by a common goal of fighting climate change, sharing sustainable earth stewardship, know-how, promoting equality, and providing disaster relief. Though they were clearly rattled by the events of the past few months, they kept circling back to what they perceived as a much larger existential threat. Uh, scroll up. The crises that will befall our planet if people don't take action now. And again, like in the document, they don't really seem to be doing, I think the thing, the the work that they're doing best with is like food waste because dumpster diving is a great way to curb food waste but other than that nothing they they're doing looks particularly complex or resourceful in any way and i guess like they, they're very also very big on shitting and pissing so that it goes back into the ground that's another thing they're like they're very big on not wanting to waste their poop but again like there's not a lot of them and it feels like it it, it feels like they're not helping in the way that they want to be helping Nine days after the vice team left, the Garden published a post on Facebook saying that it was closing its doors to the public. Can you tell me about uh, what life looks there now? Julia says, I think with so much attention on us and also these people that were making it their personal mission to destroy the garden, calling local officials, it was like, okay, for the long-term longevity of the space, maybe it's better if there's not a lot of people here right now. Uh, we came to that decision together and decided maybe it's a good time for us to disperse. Maybe it's a good time for there to just be less attention on the space let's stop posting on the internet and say that it's closed and it's really surprising to me because it does seem like people who are calling to get them shut down were just trying to like ruin their good time because this is a group that like they're not even all like they don't even all have the same political views they're not all riding on um some prophecy 
or some singular prophet. Like they just are people who kind of want to learn how to live more minimalistically. And it really doesn't, I mean, a lot of them have terrible personalities and crazy egos and definitely are like mentally ill, but like they're, they're just, they don't seem to really be doing anything that's harmful. Uh, okay. Uh, so we came to that decision together and decided maybe it's a good time for us to disperse. Maybe it's a good time for there to just be less attention on the space. Let's stop posting on the internet and say it's closed. The other thing was uh, was that people were showing up who nobody knew and they were like, hey, I saw the TikToks. We were worried that there were people online trying to infiltrate or sabotage. We had to go from being a really open and trusting space to being suspicious of anyone that came in. So that honestly was the main reason. How can we keep facilitating new people when we feel so under attack and suspicious? <clears throat> Tree says, right. It was real threats. People were saying they were going to light buses on fire and come and really hurt people. And they're all weak. that They can't fight. None of them. So just to live with everyone knowing your address and kind of not knowing who's who, it was better to just close for a little while and let it mellow down again. Julia says – the TV just went out, guys. <laughs> Julia says uh, – okay. Julia says there's a couple of people there now – uh, kind of keeping up the gardens. We were working on a lot of bigger projects that now have come to a pause. If we kept trying to go how we were, something catastrophic could have happened that would have ended the place forever. The interviewer asked how many people are still there. Julia says, when we left, there were four people there. There are so many people that we've never even lived at the garden with, people that come every summer to help out. So there could be 10 new people that showed up since we left. But yeah, there could even be no one there. And then the interviewer says, how many people were there before it closed? Uh, Tree says, when Vice was there, it was probably like 45. And on this iteration, it's like 15, if not, you know, less. And that was during the winter. Usually, I think at the that point in the year, there's like six people. <clears throat> so they want to live off the land, but only when it's warm out. Julia says, when the TikTok thing was going really positive, we were on this steady incline of people. And it's not like that anymore. Uh, when all of the internet drama happened, you'd only been at the garden for a few months and not even continuously. What did it feel like to become one of the faces of a community that people were suddenly calling a cult? Julia says, I was really shaken up about it. Um, I would have this and she's kind of untrustworthy, but she's just kind of like a stupid bitch. She's not like evil. I don't think I would have this really negative relationship with my phone feeling responsibility. Also, I was going back and forth in my head, waking up in the night, thinking about what um, could I say to explain everything and then not having the guts to go back on TikTok because I was just sick. Uh, Tree says we did try. There was a moment where people were like, oh, are LGBTQ people and people of color welcome there? And I make a video saying, yes, they are. Pretty much everyone is welcome at the garden as long as you're family friendly and you have a positive work ethic. Uh, then they spun that out to say that it actually wasn't a place that was safe for people. Um, it was almost like anytime we fed into the accusations, it would just get worse. Well, they're saying like they just didn't want anyone showing up. But like there is nothing that I've seen so far that feels like anti-LGBTQ or anti-people of color in any way. It's an extremely diverse group of people. Ages, sexes, genders, identities, colors, ethnicities, religions, walks of life, fiscal backgrounds. Uh, for a good few weeks, I was pretty much dead inside, uh, feeling obviously responsible for just diminishing the reputation as well uh, of the garden, which has been a very good thing in the local community. I couldn't touch my phone for a few weeks. I was struggling to sleep.
Uh, what are some of the more serious ways that the other individuals at the garden have been impacted? Julia says, I know Emil and Britt felt really, really scared. They received a lot of direct threats. They left. They definitely didn't even feel safe to be at the property. Tree says they're on TikTok and they felt threatened. They were personally attacked. They couldn't be there anymore. There are so many instances of people being like, I don't feel safe. Like these are they, – they are all – it's amazing that they live outside because it doesn't even feel like they can live inside uh looking back which accusations against the garden felt the most off the mark and why julia says i mean i guess the cult accusation in so many other projects we've worked on it's like okay this person owns the land and we all help him uh out in the garden Patrick uh, Martian owns the land and that's the guy who comes from the rainbow family uh, but he works harder than anybody has the exact and he doesn't have culty vibes really he's like kind of like going off and helping other things like he just seems like a laid back CEO has the same exact living space that everybody else has everybody is equal parts a leader it was one of the most non hierarchical spaces I've ever experienced so to be called a cult which is something where people are being forced towards a certain ideology or something just felt so off the mark tree says it's completely the opposite of what the garden was you're free to believe and do as you wish as long as you don't hurt people or hurt the space I would agree with that nobody can live in one structure for more than a year to prevent the idea of personal ownership it's supposed to be kind of like a revolving door where people come, they get inspired, they learn, and then they expand out. People ask, why did you leave the garden thinking we lived there? It was always a transitory space, which they're still there. So I guess also the accusation that people of color will not safe there felt off the mark. We had multiple families of color there. It was a very inclusive and non-judgmental space. We had queer people there. We had trans people there. We had the whole spectrum of the LGBT community there at the garden. Julia says neurotypical people, people that uh, maybe don't feel like they fit in. It's like here you're accepted for who you are. And the interviewer says, are you saying many of those people have left because of what happened? And Tree says, well, they were directly threatened that people were going to come and burn down their bus. The interviewer says, were there any other accusations that felt off the mark to you? Julia says, I mean, people would say, oh, anyone's welcome. That means that a pedophile could enter the space. So how could it be safe there? I thought about that one a lot. The garden is like a park. Anyone's welcome at a park, right? Anyone's welcome at a library. But how do you keep your kids safe in a library? You look after them. It's the same at the garden. We're all usually together looking out for the kids. We have all these methods to look out for each other. If there is an act of violence, we try to de-escalate the situation. Um, and I did see a lot of mediation. That was true. Uh, Tree says it's not an open door policy. It's a visitor pass. You can be a visitor for three to 10 days or even just for a tour. And on your 10th day, you go to council and say, hey, I would like to stay longer. And then we have a consensus, which means 100% of the people need to say yes about this person before becoming a long-term member of the community. One person could just say no, and if someone comes into the space and someone feels really unsafe about them, they can immediately ask that person to leave. And this is all true. I mean, from what I saw. Um, <clears throat> it is uh, – then it, let, we can scroll past this because it's about a person who we don't learn about. Um all right. I think that's kind of enough for that. They're not saying anything overly uh, amazing. Um, and that's kind of also details about the the previous thing. But I, I would agree with all of this. And again, like there's nothing I've seen to me that really points to like any need for it to be shut down or even really any sense of like they all seem fine, like healthy enough, you know, um, and then the Patrick character who started it uh 
initially from the Rainbow family. I think that's the only other piece that I that of this puzzle that's missing in my look at the Garden Commune. Um, uh, this is from all that's interesting.com from peace and love to murder and drugs, the story of the rainbow family. And this is from uh, November of this year. Uh, oh, actually, sorry. It's originally from May of 2018, but it was updated uh, in November of this year. In one member's own words, the Rainbow family is the largest, best coordinated, non-political, non-denominational uh, uh, non-organization of like-minded individuals on the planet. Their full name is the Rainbow Family of Living Light, but you can just call them the Rainbow Family. Around since the early 1970s, this counterculture group was heavily inspired by the famous 1969 Woodstock Festival, as well as the anti-war pro-love movements. Unlike many of the hippie groups that saturated the 1960s before fading away, the Rainbow Family lives on, holding annual rainbow gatherings. Unfortunately, it's not all peace and love. Though the Rainbow Family boasts that it has no leader, uh, egalitarian, boasting it, there were two men largely credited for starting it. Barry Plunker and Garrick Beck were in their late 20s when they had a prophetic vision. After attending another music festival in Portland, Oregon called Vortex, uh, one in August of 1970, they decided that all the, uh, the small communes, nomadic groups, and stray hippies could merge together. Their goal was to create, as one late, uh, later member described it, the largest, best coordinated, non-political, non-denominational, non-organization of like-minded individuals on the planet. Plunker, who had previously lived in a commune on Height Street in San Francisco, uh, used sorry, um, used various Eastern and Western philosophies to attract members to the Rainbow family. For instance, he'd mentioned Tao or the Book of Revelation, quoting sections like, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. He'd even used Native American folklore uh, to say that the Rainbow family was, in a way, a reincarnation of dead warriors reclaiming the earth. Plunker and Garrick, who called themselves prophets, peddled leaflets and newsletters around. Eventually, after enough members joined, they set up a community of about 40 tribes people just outside Eugene, Oregon, and became a legal corporation. Once the Rainbow family of Living Light was established, the next uh, step was to put together a gathering. Since the foundation of the Rainbow family included no formalized membership or officials, leaders of any kind, anybody was invited to what would become known as Rainbow Gatherings. <clears throat> And, uh, of, of course, to have the rainbow gatherings, there would have to be a space to accommodate all the like-minded individuals. The first official rainbow gathering was held in Granby, Colorado in 1972 at Strawberry Lake. However, it almost didn't happen. A Rolling Stone article with the headline Acid Crawlback uh, crawl back Fest, Armageddon postponed and published on August 3rd, 1972, read, by the middle of May, all 800 or so people in Granby expected to be overrun by an estimated 1 million fanatic Christ and dope addicts coming to a blasphemous festival at Table Mountain, right smack in the middle of their park. A court order was issued against the Rainbow Gathering at its initial location, but a local developer named Paul Geisendorfer offered the group his land uh, his nearby site at Strawberry Lake. While the gatherings are meant to represent peace with music, dancing, and love, they have continuously been met with controversy. 
Uh, initially, the participants were meant to get together and pray or meditate for world peace. Costs were covered by donations and days were spent going to workshops, sitting in women's circles or drum circles, going for walks and practicing yoga or tantra. Of course, attendees would also smoke marijuana and dabble with psychedelic drugs. The group's values claim to be noble, aimed at creating a better society and contributing to world peace. But they've often been criticized as most participants' values lie in hanging out in the woods and getting free drugs, which was one of my most favorite things about uh, the garden, that there were no drugs and there were no alcohol. At one point, I think there was a talk of like one guy teaching another person how to make mead, which is like old-timey beer. Um, But uh, uh, so it was sad to hear from that, you know, Google or Yelp review that Mike read that they have since like become drunks. Uh, The Rainbow family has also been scrutinized for not properly cleaning up after their gatherings. They've received complaints by the Forest Service and public officials for leaving garbage behind, thus leaving a detrimental impact on the environment and large costs to local governments. Disputes with locals have been a repetitive problem as well. And that's a common problem for these kind of like... uh, uh, traveling communes in the most serious incident two women were murdered and this is a the talked about in the garden documentary when when you know some some families are going to these tests or some individuals are going to these test periods one of the guy's wives is like two women were murdered at one of these meetings um at the rainbow family which is how the the guy who started the garden he grew up in the rainbow family and in these rainbow gatherings um Two women were murdered at a rainbow gathering at Monagala National Forest in West Virginia in 1980 after there had been brewing tension between the Rainbow family and the locals. Police believed that the women were shot to death by a group of local men. Um, so it seems more just like domestic violence kind of. Uh, one of whom was convicted, though later exonerated. A serial killer, Joseph Paul Franklin, then admitted to killing the women, but later said he had actually just read about the murders. As of now, the killers have not been caught and an upcoming documentary titled The Rainbow Murders explores the incident and the rainbow gathering at which it happened. So, I mean, with that coverage, it makes it seem like, yeah, people were murdered at the rainbow gathering, but had nothing to do with the beliefs of the rainbow gathering. Uh, Despite the controversies, the rainbow family still exists and the rainbow gatherings still happen. Each year, an estimated 8,000 to 20,000 people, uh, and it looks very Midsommar in the pictures, uh, attend the gathering held typically at national forests. Rob Savoy, a rainbow who has been attending the gatherings for over 30 years, said people are tolerant, accepting of different stuff, and that a lot of us have had rough family lives. (laughs) What a surprise. And the rainbow has sort of filled that void for us. Right? So like that's – in your adulthood. Uh, many times you're going to end up in a group like this. And I'm not saying this is even necessarily a cult, but the rainbow gathering because you need a sense of community because everyone needs that. And so if you don't have this sense of community, love and belonging and understanding within your own family, well, then you're going to go out into the world and create um, a family of your own or find a family of your own, whatever that looks like to you. However, Savoy also said that the general vibe of the group has changed over the years with heavier drug use and incidents of violence. A lot of these kids end up hanging out more in town and causing trouble with the locals. It's an embarrassment, he said. The Rainbow family has no official website, making it difficult to keep track of any official numbers in regards to the increase or decline in participants. And then you can also look at the Rainbow family's Wikipedia, um, which describes it a little bit more... Um, let's see. Um, 
and yeah and like don't and when you're if you're looking this up don't confuse it there's a there's some rainbow con- connection stuff that has to do with like lgbtq stuff that those are like nonprofits. those are different um a lot of these are the same information was like that but yeah there is a there is a large wikipedia page on it um but none of like you know there's sicknesses that broke out there's a parvo virus um that out, outbreak among dogs at a rainbow gathering in 2006 there was an outbreak of shigellosis which is apparently bloody diarrhea in 1987 but i mean that's going to happen if you have a bunch of people who don't like to shower uh getting around um and hanging out for days on end uh it says in montana in 2000 then governor mark rassicott declared a state of emergency because of fears of the coming environmental destruction of the rainbows on the national forest a year later dennis havoc the district ranger from the nearby town of wisdom commented that there were 23,000 people here and you can find virtually no trash. There's an aspect of diminished ve- vegetation, but you'd have to look hard to see the damage. The untrained eye isn't going to see it. So it seems like perhaps people were making excuses for reasons that they shouldn't be allowed on properties anymore. But again, like I think any instance where you're getting um, together this amount of people, yeah, there's going to be people getting, you know, people get, you know, viruses on cruises when they're together. Like, you know, people are fucking, some people are fucking dirty. And when they get together, things are going to happen. Um, there were three non-fatal stabbings at a gathering in Colorado in 2014. The same year, a woman was found dead at a rainbow gathering in Utah. Uh, in early 2015, there was a fatal shooting at a gathering in Florida. Well, I mean, there's shootings and stabbings at many gatherings, cult-like or not, because this is America. Um, in 2015, a group of Native American academics and writers issued a statement against the Rainbow family members who are appropriating and practicing faux Native ceremonies and beliefs. I can definitely believe this. Uh, that's happening in a lot of these communes. These actions, although Rainbows may not realize, dehumanize us as Indigenous nation uh, because they imply our culture and humanity like our land is for anyone's taking. The signatory is specifically named this misappropriation as cultural exploitation. On July 4th of the same year, the the Win Mem Wintu issued a cease and desist letter on behalf of itself and the Pitt River and Modoc tribes, ordering the Rainbow family off of sacred and sensitive lands in Shasta Trinity National Forest. Um, so it seems like their biggest crime is kind of cultural appropriation and and misappropriation of indigenous people's culture because there's another uh incident that's the misrepresentation of a a, a hoppy legend um okay so that's that um that again after uh further review this is way less of a cult than um the other cults that i've seen and uh i am actually i mean i have no interest in living this way i love electricity and the inside i don't even really really like camping um but i would totally want to like go and check it out for a night or two just to see what it was like but man i would be uh scared of getting uh lice um so that's that i'm going to continue uh to to watch this series but thank you so much for the suggestion uh, that has been our episode today. Have a wonderful, beautiful new year. Um, again, if you want to see me, uh, when is this coming out? This will come out mm, on the 27th. Yeah. So yes. So this, um, 
New Year's Eve, if you do not have plans, well, you should have plans. It should be to come to my show. New Year's Eve, New York Comedy Club, East Village, 6 p.m., Corinne Fisher's Morbid New Year's Eve, if it's not sold out yet. Uh, it is me, Christina Hutchinson, Ryan Long, John Campanelli, Justin Silver, Chloe LeBranch. It is going to be such a fun show. We did it last year with a, a slightly different lineup, and we had a fucking blast. So make sure to get your tickets to that. Perfect way. Start your night pregame. Again, Corinne Fisher's Morbid New Year's Eve, New York Comedy Club, 6 p.m. East Village for your New Year's Eve. And then moving forward, we have February 1st. Guys, we fucked live at the Midnight Theater the MasterCard Midnight Theater uh, in New York City. Uh, we are also doing uh, Valentine's Day, guys. We fucked in Los Angeles at the Comedy Store in the main room. Again, February 14th, that is that show. Guys, we fucked live in the main room at the Comedy Store. Um, I'll be doing some gashes in 2024, uh, so uh, stay tuned for those dates and some other uh, cities. And then, of course, Washington, D.C. I'm headlining the D.C. Comedy Law February 29th through March 2nd. Get those tickets now uh, available at the link in my link tree link in my bio. I'm at Philanthropy Gal on all social media. If you want to send me a tip, a thought, a response to something, uh, a domestic violence story, a cuties corner, any of that kind of stuff, it's without a country podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show, for using your critical thinking, uh, for you know exploring the truth, what cults mean, what terrorists mean. I, I, I think this has just been uh, such a rewarding experience so far, and I really appreciate you being here with me. Have a wonderful holiday. I'll see you in 2024. Bye.